June 5th, 2020, Technology and Education. What will we do with all the teachers? John Sanders Parables for Entrepreneurs podcast. Visit johnsanders.com for more podcasts and articles. So here is what I see with a new article from the Wall Street Journal, actually an op-ed opinion piece by Andy Kessler who's one of their staff writers. And his title is Give Online Learning an Upgrade. So he is saying that a lot of parents are figuring out that remote, I'm reading from him, a lot of parents are figuring out that remote learning forced on us by school closings is mostly the same old, same old, teachers droning on to students, except online now. So he goes on, uh, with a little bit of extra stuff. He has to fill his article. But further down, he says, okay, a lot to unpack about what is happening in education. He says, many schools have used flipped classrooms. A teacher records lectures that students watch at home, and the next day in class, students discuss the lectures and do what would have been their homework. But that model go- only goes so far. Lectures are still dull. They don't engage and motivate kids. Even with small class sizes, many students fall behind. So, he says, up in teachers, kind of by creating a robust online learning system filled with building blocks and snippets that students need to complete before moving on. In fact, do away with the teachers. This is almost the way you're going. So, I uh, don't disagree with that. He goes on further to say that there is a company called Khan Academy, K-H-A-N, provides online instruction. I've watched this company for several years. Provides online instruction via more than 13,000 videos and 4,000 articles, plus almost 75,000 practice problems. Before COVID-19, it had 18 million monthly students. That's pretty big. Mr. Khan tells me that on my on any given day this April, we had over 30 million students with that are there furloughed at home, meaning 50 to 70 percent more people using it, 50 to 70 percent more per person. So, Mr. Khan says this, June. You've heard it here first. We'll roll out. Get ready for grade level. The new suite of courses will give you exactly the prerequisites you need to get you to wherever grade level you should be at, breezing through what you know. But if you don't know it, you have the opportunity to fill in the gaps. He is right on. So, you know, the the biggest fight in the big cities against all of this, of course, is the unions who are protecting the jobs of their teachers. Rightly so. But so are the two incompatible. Maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, let me tell you, I was, uh, before I moved to Carlsbad, California five years ago, I spent five, nine years in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, the Redneck Riviera. We enjoyed it. We enjoyed all of our time there. Even enjoyed the motorcycle rallies in the spring. The, <laughs> the, 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 the Harley, uh, conference or convention or whatever it was would brought in a couple hundred thousand Harleys for the weekend. Let me mm. tell you, the noise was deafening. Mm. And then there was the Atlantic Beach one, which was primary, was the old Black Beach 
which never became part of uh, the, the, the community. They retained their autonomy. And they put on a motorcycle rally every every spring in over the Memorial Weekend. And they bring in a couple hundred thousand of these performance bikes with mostly black riders, not, not exclusively. And uh, it, was, uh, it was quite an experience, both of them. But I got a kick out of it. So they just had to stay off the particular roads where they went back and forth. That's all. Because they were just driving up and down. There'd be a few rallies where they got together. You had a lot of street vendors selling motorcycle stuff. It was fun. Myrtle Beach was, we really enjoyed Myrtle Beach. Yeah. So we moved from Myrtle Beach, not for any reason with Myrtle Beach, but finally our children got married out here in California and got Mm -hmm. close enough together that we found a spot that was equally inconvenient for both of them. So uh, (laughs) uh, here we are. Uh, But let me tell you about another company that before I get to my article. Yeah. I was involved in 1976 during my years in the stockbrokerage business actually the small stock investing business. Uh, Brokerage was a way to build client value. So when we did deals, I had pots of money around. And um, a company called Industrial Training Corporation. And these three men came into the office, three of them, and they had just resigned recently from NUS Corporation, which was a nuclear services corporation that did work with uh, the atomic power plants, nuclear power plants. So what these the three of the guys were one was the manager of the training department, the second was the chief sales guy, and the third was the chief technical guy that did all the video recording and other stuff. So they had been doing that for a while. And they wanted to set up their own company, which my partner and I found fantastic, because here's three guys that cover the waterfront, experienced, ready to go, in their mid to late thirties, I guess they were at the time, and kind of prime time to get things rolling. And we raised $150,000 for them, which is pretty, you know, that's a half a million now. And uh, off we went. The first thing I had to do was buy a $45,000 video camera. <laughs> oh, my. So, and back then, that's what they cost. That was it, because you only had broadcast quality. Yeah. So $45,000 camera and a few playbacks and editing equipment. So of the one hundred fifty, we probably put seventy five into equipment. And uh, off we went because what they wanted to do was develop programs in mechanical maintenance and electrical maintenance and sell them to power plants because that's the market they knew. Hmm. And I learned a lot about that that uh, from Bill Walton, who was the chief uh, designer of the video. And um, so Bill gave me the instructions on what they do. First of all, he said, you can't use trained instructors because we're doing stuff that requires you to tell people exactly how to do it so that they can go in the lab and reproduce it. And most of the instructors are there because they can't do it. They can teach it, but they can't do it. And we're teaching them because with video, you got to teach them how to do it. And so for instance, the first program they did was on uh, maintaining a centrifugal pump, centrifugal pumps, are everywhere. Millions, millions of them. For, for yep. 100, 150 years they've been around. It's a very simple thing. It just throws the stuff out by centrifugal force. So you put them in the hair and it whips it out the other end. And the big problem, the big maintenance area, is the uh, gaskets that, that keep it from leaking. So you have these oh, gaskets yeah. just like you would have in around a, any other gasket, rubber or other kind of stuff. And you have to put it in 
uh, this my fa- my hands aren't coming through on the podcast, are they? <laughs> but I no, have to. No. I have to do this. But you put it around the the shaft, and you have to cut it in a certain way. And he says, you don't cut a thing like that to fit it tight, because if you cut it vertically, right straight across the the, the gasket, it ha- it won't meet perfectly. So the oh, first yeah. thing you have to do is cut it at a each at an angle so that it fits together and slides into each into the end so that it forms a perfect seal. Because if you yeah. don't get a perfect seal, you're dead already. Right. And so it's things like this that make the difference between how you do with instructors. So we actually mm-hmm. get actual maintenance people that have been around and know what they're doing to, to actually give the demo, though they might not have a good voice, but we'll deal with that because you can voice over them. The second thing he said was that we limit the segments to eight minutes. That's as long as any astute person can maintain real concentration. At that point, they're drifting, even if they're interested in it. So all these segments were eight-minute segments, plus or minus. So the third thing is you got to have a person that speaks without an accent. So I wouldn't qualify because I've still got some Kentucky ease to me. But it's not much there anymore, John. No, I've lost it. I've been gone from Kentucky, let's see, 60-plus years. So yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm losing it. Spent time in New York, upstate New York and Pittsburgh and Washington, D.C., and Myrtle Beach and here. So I've lost it, and I don't get back there very often. So, uh, the, uh, so he said, what we have found is you get people from not Baltimore, as they say, Balmer in that region, but in suburban Maryland, they eat, uh, not the eastern shore, but up toward the mountains where you get a kind of a neutral accent. It's, it's nondescript. There isn't any. So therefore, you don't offend anybody. You don't have people concentrating on the voice. You put all that together, and then they started selling the, the stuff and did pretty good. Their problem was is that, like a lot of small companies that have products, the market changed around them. The technology changed. So they started out with videotape, and you get oh, going yeah. for two or three years, and then guess what comes along? The video disc. So they had to reformat everything. They had hundreds of courses, hundreds of segments. They had to take everything on tape and put it on disc? And to put it on disc because the, the wow. utilities were up to date. They were buying the new reproduction equipment. Right. And video disc was coming along, and guess what comes next? The, video, the small, the CD-ROM. And then he had to yep. redo it all for the CD-ROM. And it just about killed him each time because they had like 200 courses. And to have to redo all of that was not an inconsequential job. And it was, wasn't something you could do overnight. So anyway, the company had very good success. Then it had its problems. Then the guys squabbled with each other. And it's still around. I made some good money off of it. And uh, it's moved on. Somebody acquired what, what year was that, John? 19, either 1976 or 1978. 76, 78. Okay. I, I just kind of where I was at. I, I'm questioning where was I at in technology. And I was, I you were was just, just in, get, you were in grade school. I was, well, no, I was in my early twenties and I was just getting involved in computers. I actually sold a 57 Chevy to buy my first computer. And a boy. Good. Or you yeah. should have held on to that 57 Chevy. Uh, I don't go there. <laughs> I had a 69 Camaro Z28 too. And when I moved to Washington in 1963, 64, uh-huh. I bought a 1965 Dodge Coronet 500 convertible. It was hot. Had a 483 yeah, no cubic inch engine, big four on the floor with a 
with a chrome. I remember the, my chrome uh, gear shift lever, and it already had air conditioning and power and power steering, and uh, I had an electric top and electric windows. It was it was loaded. That was pretty good for sixty five. Paid yeah, twenty seven hundred dollars for it. <laughs> brand brand new. Brand new, right off the dealer showroom. I, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, yeah. There was a car I, I bought a long time ago. I paid $1,600 for yeah, brand new. Yeah. It, was, it was actually Honda's first car. Oh, there you go. So, yeah. well, let's don't get off on cars. We can talk forever. No, 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 no. That's, this is not I, the car the way, podcast. I drove that thing 18 years. Oh, did you? 40,000 oh, nice. miles. Wow. So, I love yeah. that car. Yeah. So, uh, the engine was never touched. Never, never opened it to, for the rings, the valves, nothing. Uh, so, uh, the, uh, but, but I got, I really got interested in, in education at the time because uh-huh. you could see these guys were going out and providing a real training session, bypassing the instructors. That's what the, the utilities were using this for. So they didn't hire uh-huh. instructors. They put the people in front of the tape machine. And then they had an instructor in the lab to help them then do what they need to do because these were hands-on mechanics. Then they did the same for electrical maintenance and so forth. So they had a big bevy of programs. It's still it's it it the company that put in the investment later. It's now ITC Learning, and it's still ITCLearning.com. They're still selling those things online. ITC Learning. ITC well, from Industrial Training Corporation. That's why ITC yes. came along. Yes, yes. So uh, not much later, 1995, I was involved with the Federal Lab Consortium because I had we had done a publication called Technology Transfer Business that was teeling up with what the federal labs were doing. So I was on the advisory board for the Federal Lab Consortium, which was the marketing people, the technology transfer people for all the federal labs. And they were beginning to push tech transfer. So uh, I wrote an article for him each month, and I realized I wrote about 20 different articles. And one of them was technology and education. And my point was, because I was writing for these federal lab guys, and I said, I'm going to step on some toes in this article, and some people won't like it. My summary question is, can the education system as we know it adapt to the new technologies of learning or must we invent around it? Notice I say the technologies of learning. I said, the kids today have access to an... Ex- By the way, this article is on my website, johnsanders.com. Absolutely. One of the articles. Under, under articles, yeah. Under articles. So the kids of today have access to ex- exponential growth of methods for learning being brought forward by the new technologies of computer programs, on-demand television, interactive multimedia, and how and now the internet is 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. I said the warning flags are being posted everywhere about this dangerous influences these technologies can foster. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to minimize these dangers. We should all be aware and cautious. But previous generations, I like this sentence. I said, but previous generations learned the wrong things either behind the barn or at the pool hall or at camp or even on television. Technology and mobility have just increased the options for learning, not increased the desire. So if the wrong, this is my real point now. If the wrong things are available through more interesting and exciting media than the right things, why shouldn't we expect the learning desire to be fulfilled that way? I also would rather have fun than be bored or work hard. 
So if you're going to be bored it's listening, go to something that's exciting and fun. So I said, here's an example I've used many times in discussing motivation and education. Now this, I've got to translate the dollar amounts from 1995 to 2020. I said, give me the most underprivileged, demotivated, inner city kid, along with a roll of quarters. I might have to use a bundle of dollars today. But I said, a roll Mm -hmm. of quarters, and let's do an experiment. I'll take that kid into the video game arcade which are now like Dave and Buster's. You've been there. Yes, yes. The video game arcade and put him or her at the most complicated game. Before that roll of quarters is used up, you'll understand the intricacies, the interest, the distance, the psychology of the enemy or the partner, partner such that he could run circles around the most college-educated professor in the country. That kid will understand it and deal with it, move way ahead. He'll learn the most complicated concepts and techniques if he's motivated and has the basic principles. So why do so many people only complain about kids learning the wrong things on television? Why are we already hearing the cry that kids should not be allowed alone on the Internet? Internet was brand new in 1995. You still don't allow your kid alone on the Internet, okay? So I said, hey, wake up. Commercial televisions develop the capacity to make learning as much fun now as our grandparents had behind the barn. No wonder the kids that watch so much TV aren't motivated in school. But then I said, get ready for the real problem. This hasn't come about, I don't think. I said, is my prediction that the worst kids in junior high school five years from now are not going to be the bad kids? If you think these undermotivated kids are so disruptive now, wait till we see these motivated kids that has spent several years exploring computer software and the Internet as their baseline mode of earning. earning. They're going to be bored to death in the regular classroom. They will also probably understand more information than most of their teachers. Computers and the Internet will be as natural to them as picking up a hammer. Right. Correct? Yes. The only problem with picking up a hammer, every hammer thinks that everything's a nail. (laughs) You know that's you know that statement. Yeah. <laughs> to a hammer, yeah. everything is a nail. Right. So I said, don't let these modern tools rest in your lab. Remember, I'm talking to lab people. Or gather dust at the local school because the educators don't really understand them. Or be rejected because the wrong stuff can be learned through them. Or not be purchased because all the money must be used only for salaries. Don't let people stand in the way of good uses of technology. And I said, and here's the real secret. There's going to be big markets for these good solutions. And we mm-hmm. still have not had the big markets in computer education. Right. Because it's being held back in the public schools. And that's why they don't allow charter schools. Because the charter schools go to online learning because they're there to make money as well as do give good education. It's right. What so Mr. they have Kahn, the finances and resources to create all this. And stuff. what Mr. Kahn has proved, what has he got? How many thousands of how many thousands of courses? It's incredible what the guy has developed and what he's doing. And it's, it's, and he's a, by the way, he's for profit. So he's making money too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not a, I will say that recently I, uh, in Myrtle Beach, I started promoting with the local high schools. We're pushing robotics and in junior high and high school. Now it's down to this, down to the second and third grade. The kids are playing with robots because they've come out with more and more. Robots that are easier to work with. But in those days, this is 10 or 15 years ago, 
we, we, the high schoolers did, and the, the, the big program they were in was the first robotics, F-I-R-S-T. I've forgotten what that stands for, but it's been, it was done by, uh, for, uh, uh, diabetics that does the insulin, the insulin, uh, pump. All right. Oh, right, right. So he made millions off of it. So he's an inventor and he started first robotics to promote robotics throughout the schools in the United States. And they had like 55 regions and each region had their own, uh, contest because first came out with a, with a, a game that they had to play with these robots. Now these are, these are big robots. They're probably two feet by three feet on the uh, base. And then you had all the stuff and throw basketballs and, and frisbees and other things like that. And so I promoted, I put money into, and I had a little tech council that promoted the regional, uh, robotics, uh, contest that was held in Myrtle Beach for the mostly South Carolina with some from North Carolina and Georgia. We had 65 teams. I mean, nice. there'd be 500 kids and they had, uh, their own t-shirts. They had their own, uh, capes. They had hats. They had their parents that came with them and teachers. I mean, it was a big deal. Filled the, it filled the basketball arena. And this is not soapbox derby either. No, no, this is real techno. And let me tell you, the teams, these teams were, some of the teams went back 10 years. And of course they had high schoolers that changed, but you had people that worked with them and they'd get local sponsors to go in with it. And it was an exciting event because it was like being at the damn Olympics. They were hollering yeah. and screaming and had their cheers and everything. And you had the contest. You had two teams at a time out there with their, generally with their contest. And then you had a series of them. And then at the end, the ones that made the most points won the contest. And then two of the teams went on to the national in St. Louis, which had 110 teams because he had all regions had two teams there if they could afford it. I told, I remember the first time one of the schools won. I said, you thought having to put the 10,000 up to get your thing was here. Now you got to have 25,000 to get the kids to St. Louis and back on their <laughs> equipment and give them three nights in a hotel. So the big, the win you lose. So, um, but they all made it. Let me tell you, parents, the parents saw what that teamwork did for these kids. It's not just that they got thrilled with the mathematics and the electronics and what they were doing with the robot, but the teamwork was incredible. They would have yeah. a captain. They had all the teams. So they learned teamwork. They learned, and they learned, uh, uh, cooperation and they learned technology and they saw the value of the math and physics and the science. And they suddenly, mm. even the worst of them became converts. They became zealot on mathematics and, and physics and electric and electrical stuff. And because see, I used to say, and I still do say, that technology people are taught from day one teamwork. If you ever had a course in chemistry or physics, you never did an experiment alone. You always had another person or more that did it in team. So you learn that you do technology projects by getting the best people to get the job done. And there's usually one person that stands out as a better organizer. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so that's actually, I, I, I'm reflecting on it, John, because that's me. Yeah. So I, I love collaboration. I love teamwork and uh, moving into kind of organizing it. As you may know. So we're learned from junior high school that technology involves teamwork. 
Yes. Solving technology problem involves teamwork. And that robotics programs are it. And now I work with one of the local schools here for their, by the way, these are kindergarten to fifth graders. And the robotic stuff they're doing is incredible. They, the, <clears throat> the future of this country is in great hands. These kids are going to be developing stuff like crazy. And yeah. uh, one of my, one of the students, he's got a, <clears throat> he's got a YouTube of the, of the, uh, model he built of the little car that goes around, goes around the track and then hits this and it, makes the ball roll over to that and it goes down the, the swivel and it and ultimately hits this this domino that makes this whole string of dominoes fall over to eventually hits the final thing where the little car then gets pushed into the drink or something. It's incredible what these kids are he's a fourth grader. He's a fourth grader. Fourth wow. grader. And so these teachers there in that school, they have to hustle because these kids are incredible, and it, it, and they're a little, and the kids are probably a little ahead of the teachers, right? In general, they are. All right. Yes, but you've got you've got two or three good teachers, so the teachers work in teamwork, also, <laughs> so they know mm-hmm. who the really good students are, and mm-hmm. they are afraid of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, when you when when there's another event like that, let me know. I'd like to go. All right, all right. It's they're happening all the time. They got to. We got to get back to to gathering. Yes. It seems like we're getting there, but uh, we'll see. Well, look what the stock market did today. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to look. What did it do? The in- unemployment up. rate went way down, way below estimates. And the market's okay. up almost 1,000 points, the Dow Jones. Great. How do you want to wrap this uh, podcast up? Do you want to get a little summary about technology and education? Well, number one, I love my analogy from 25 years ago that uh, that kids that want to learn – Generally, learn the wrong stuff behind the barn or barn or in the pool hall or on television, and they learn it because it's more exciting and it's something they really want to learn. Yeah. So you have to motivate kids, and in today's world, television, computers are so motivating on their own. There's so many places that the old way of teaching by having a lecture by the by the teacher doesn't cut it, no matter how mm. good the teacher is. Mm-hmm. And they have to do things that motivate with their hands, that motivate with their minds. And let me tell you, you can take the most, as I mentioned in my uh, previous, you can take the most under-motivated, under-educated kid and take him to some place that's exciting with a lot of uh, lights going on and off and balls rolling around, and he will totally tear you up because he'll understand it very quickly and know how to how to beat the system. So... The challenge for me, education, is what to do with all the excess teachers, unless you make them room proctors. But in many cases, that's oh my what gosh. they are. Right? I never saw. I never saw this coming. It's been I, coming I for thirty it, years. No, I know, but you know, it's like, yeah, I, I never saw this coming. I, I'm kind of putting it like right today. Yeah, but but it's like. And I'm not a big fan. Of, I, I totally get this article. I totally get, man, you were so far ahead of your time. So it is a good question. What What do you do with the teachers, you know? Well, you pay them more to do nothing. You know how many teachers they have in New York City sitting mm-hmm. in, I don't know what they call them, that they, the contracts don't allow you to fire a teacher. 
So when they have to take the teacher out of the classroom, they put them in some uh, uh, facility where they spend the day looking their navel or something. And uh, Ridiculous. It's amazing how much money is wasted in the education business. And everybody says we don't pay them enough. We don't pay the good teachers enough. We pay the bad teachers way too much. They should be Got out it. of there. Well, and they replace, have tenure. Replace One, them with a computer screen. Yeah, they have tenure. Once they're in, they're in, and that's it. It's terrible. Yeah. So no, thanks. And and universities have the same problem. The best things are going to happen to universities. Pretty soon, the universities will be retirement homes. There'll be uh, uh, their gymnasiums will still do good, but the classrooms will be vacant. Because the online stuff and the electronic stuff is going to eat the professor's lunch, especially if you're learning English literature or something else like that. Why the hell do you need a teacher? So accept to answer questions and kind of give the motivation. If the teacher can't motivate, kick them out. Mm-hmm. But And especially if it's $75,000 a year, which you got to write a check for, okay? Yeah. So I think these universities that have put all their money recently – Instead of developing courses and other stuff, they've been putting into more buildings so that the kids have more stuff. I went back to this university at uh, in Myrtle Beach uh, called Coastal Carolina. It, the president was a friend of mine from D.C. And um, they just—it's amazing how much money went into buildings. Mm-hmm. And they got and and the new student activity center has a rock climbing wall has. Uh, Athletic facilities, weight rooms, all this sort of stuff, a swimming pool, you name it. it and they even offer massages. And so they put in that to make the students' activities and life on campus and didn't change the, you know, they didn't change the, uh, the education part of it very much. So with all these tools available for education, they got to do something. And those universities, who knows what they're going to be five years from now. Yeah, well, the the piece that's missing that I've been hearing a lot about, I'd like to send you a link to another guy, Scott Galloway, on this subject, is that um, part of what's missing in this virtual world is people gathering. But, you, but you've identified that these kids did get together in teams and work on robotics problems together. Yeah. That's it. That That's where they learn the most, right? That's where they learn the most. They take all they've learned and they put it together solving problems, creating right. new items and inventions and new new developments that's where yep. they that's where they motive they're motivated right right love it well thanks for the clarity on all that it was great so we'll see john sanders parables for entrepreneurs podcast visit johnsanders.com for more podcasts and articles